Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 131, Edwin's Conversion. And members, have a look on your feeds, because there's more stuff about King Arthur on there, and there's another talk on what went wrong and what went right in a few more episodes of History Channel's Vikings. So make sure you update your feeds on your British History Podcast apps. And if you haven't yet downloaded the app, you should do so. It's free. Okay, so when we last left off, Bishop Paulinus thought that he was about to get Edwin to convert. But then Edwin pulled a bait and switch and said that God hadn't jumped through enough hoops yet, and that he wanted to speak with his council and then deliberate privately before making a decision. Now, Edwin was slick. He built political ties on the island. He also tied himself across the channel with the Merovingians, as his children with Aethelbur were kin of the Frankish king. And he was also aware of the importance of symbology and appearances. So he did things like having a standard bore ahead of him that hearkened back to Roman times. And ties to Rome still carried an aura of authority, and he almost certainly knew that Christianity would put him even closer to Rome. And I suspect that he had that in mind when he chose to marry Aethelbur. And that ambition probably also played a role in why Edwin allowed the church to establish a see in York, despite his and Northumbria's paganism. Moreover, having clergy in his kingdom meant that he would have access to technological advances from the continent, and he even had the possibility of having literate men in his court, which was no small advantage. There were plenty of upsides to conversion when you look at the power that it would confer. So, why the delay? Well, it was dangerous as hell. I mean, things hadn't gone exactly well for the Christian Anglo-Saxon kings in Britain. And this Christian god probably didn't seem all that powerful. If he was, why would the powerful kings like Raidwald have gotten away with turning away from him? And why was only Kent Christian? And if this god was so mighty, why was Edwin of Northumbria the Bretwalda rather than Aidbald of Kent? I mean, that was the Christian. Further... Many of us, Christian or not, are quite used to the concepts within Christianity. They seem normal and mainstream to us. But imagine what it looked like from the perspective of Edwin and the other Northumbrians, for whom all of this was new. Frankly, it's quite possible that the Christian god seemed weak, and rather strange. And if Edwin was talking with Paulinus and other Christians about this god they probably would have had a hard time explaining to him why a god who was tortured to death by mere humans, without leading any armies, getting revenge, or defeating anyone in battle, was preferable to Thunor or Woden. I mean, he willingly carried his own torture device up a hill, was then tortured, and then he died. And the Christians said it was a triumph. And I can imagine how it would be hard for Edwin to ignore that this Christian god was dead. Sure, they said he resurrected, but he died nailed to a cross. That's pretty dead. Whereas Woden was the god of death. And Thunor was a god of war, a mighty god who aided his followers in battle. This Christian god was never even a soldier, never a warrior. And depending on how much the missionaries taught about him, he had a lot to say about forgiveness and peace. Now Edwin had a pretty rough and war-torn past. He'd been on the run from Aethelfrith for years, lost most of his family, and once he came into power, he proceeded to exact revenge upon those who betrayed his family, like Cheritich. Gods of war and death were probably much more his speed, 
And given the way he lived his life, I'm guessing that he'd want the gods who govern those aspects on his side much more than this Christ figure with his hugs and dying. Now, obviously, we're going to get into the arguments that were made in favor of converting, and we've actually had several episodes that were exclusively about why to convert, but I wanted to set up the bias that he might have had against conversion. So those were the spiritual matters. But what about the temporal danger that Edwin might find himself in? I mean, King Sabert of Essex converted to Christianity, and after he lost the protection of King Ethelbert of Kent, he didn't last a year, and his three pagan sons ended up taking control. Hell, even the mighty King Ethelbert was a bit worried about conversion. So he went about it very slowly, and even when he did convert, he did it in the lightest manner possible, merely doing a personal conversion. And that wasn't what Paulinus and the church wanted. They would want Northumbria to convert en masse. That's basically taking conversion, which is already ruling on hard mode, and cranking it up to nightmare mode. Silly video game references aside, I'm quite serious about this. Converting like this was no small feat. Think about it from the perspective of every single person living in the kingdom who wasn't the king. So, almost everyone. Your religion, who your gods were and how you would practice, could be determined by a single person. A single person who you almost certainly would never meet. That's crazy! I mean, what happens to you after you die would be determined by a few discussions, maybe a few council meetings, and maybe a vision or two. And after that, one guy would decide that everyone in his kingdom would now have a new god. And you would be expected to just accept that. And it wouldn't just be a proclamation. No, you would actively have to change gods and present yourself for a mass baptism, an event that could take days or weeks before everyone was officially converted. This wasn't a matter of, what? We're Christians now? Okay, whatever. Now, you'd have to go through a ritual that would break your ties with your God and bond you to this new one, whether you wanted to or not. Can you imagine the atmosphere of something like this? On the one hand, it's during times like this that we hear of miracles being performed. And given the mass fervor, I am not surprised by those reports in the least. But I bet there are also some present who were less than enthusiastic. And some who didn't want to show up at all. And religious zeal should not be ignored. And being forced to change your own religion was certain to raise the possibility of violence among some of the more devout members of the population. These days, issues of religion are pretty laissez-faire. But this was a really big deal back then. The gods were much more front and center to life for the average person. And this was a jealous god. Maybe if it was a different god, it wouldn't have been such an issue. You could just add the god into your shrine and be done with it. But the Judeo-Christian god wasn't keen on sharing. It's right there in the Ten Commandments. In fact, it's the second one. So not only were you expected to take on a new god, but you were also required to set aside all other gods. That's gonna ruffle some feathers. And this wasn't just a personal matter. Don't forget that there were parents and children being forced into this practice. You'd have to bring your kid to this baptism. Or maybe you wouldn't even have the choice. Many noble children were already living in the king's household due to the custom of boarding noble children with the king for a time. And I'm sure that sending your son to live with a king seemed like a good idea at the time. While it was essentially hostage-taking, it came with benefits. Your son would form bonds with other nobles, tie himself to the king, and then when he reached manhood, he might be rewarded with the resources to start a household of his own. 
It had so many upsides and so few downsides, provided that your family was loyal, of course. But then the king decided to switch religions, and your child is now living with a Christian, a Christian who demands conversion. For the religious parents, this whole thing probably felt like an incredible sucker punch. Simply because the king had listened to these strange Christians, now their son might be forsaken by the gods. That wasn't part of the deal. But it was through these practices that Christianity would become firmly entrenched among the elite. Getting them while they're young is a pretty effective tactic for conversion, and it might be why you see an explosion of oblates, those were child clergy, in the early church, because that allowed the church to easily mold religious behaviors for the newly converted communities. So it wasn't like the church nor any converted king would be inclined to give any of the kids a free pass. So there were plenty of reasons why Edwin might have been reluctant. No one wants the masses, devout nobles, or outraged parents clamoring for blood. And converting might lead to precisely that. So yeah, it makes sense that Edwin would want to be careful about this decision and take it slowly. And much like King Ethelbert of Kent did, he let the church into his kingdom, but didn't undertake conversion himself possibly to take the temperature of his thanes and supporters to see if this would be something that they would accept. But he was definitely under a full-court press. Shortly after the foiled assassination attempt and his epic strike back against Quichelm, Pope Boniface sent Edwin a letter as Bede recounts it, and I'm going to read you a bit. To the illustrious Edwin, King of the English, Bishop Boniface, the servant of the servants of God, Although the power of the supreme deity cannot be expressed by human speech, as consisting in its own greatness and in an invisible and unsearchable eternity, so that no sharpness of wit can comprehend or express it, yet, in regard that the goodness of God, to give some notion of itself, having opened the doors of the heart, has mercifully, by secret inspiration, infused into the minds of men such things as he is willing shall be declared concerning himself." We have thought fit to extend our priestly care to make known to you the fullness of the Christian faith, to the end that, informing you of the gospel of Christ, which our Savior commanded should be preached to all nations, they might offer to you the cup of life and salvation. I'm a lawyer, and that's a mess, even for me, so let me give you a summary. The Pope gives a brief account of how mighty God is, and how God is a trinity, and expresses excitement that religion was spreading to the farthest reaches of the earth. And did he catch that, York? Apparently, you're the bit on the map that says, here be dragons. He then says that Edwin should follow in his queen's example and be baptized, set aside his gods, and only worship the Trinity, because otherwise, he's a captive of the devil and won't be able to get eternal life. And then he says that those who worship other gods, he calls them idols, have a great amount of guilt, and to hammer this home, he quotes the Psalms. He says, All the gods of the Gentiles are devils. Wait. This is the Psalm we're going with? This is a letter from one Gentile to another. Alright, whatever. Here's what he says. All the gods of the Gentiles are devils, but the Lord made the heavens. And again, they have eyes and do not see. They have ears and do not hear. They have noses and do not smell. They have hands and do not feel. They have feet and do not walk. Therefore, they are like those that confide in them. The Pope then points out that he doesn't understand how Edwin and his kingdom have become so misguided that they would worship other gods. 
but that the king has the power to save his people and that he should take the cross, get rid of all the other gods, for they're just the devil in disguise and are worthless. And if he joins with the church, he could be cleansed of original sin and have his heavenly reward. And then he repeats what he has to do. All he needs to do is be baptized, accept the Trinity, and get rid of all the other gods in his kingdom. Also, please see the enclosed fabulous cash and prizes, including a garment, a gold ornament, and even a shirt. Oh, Pope, you shouldn't have. So yeah, Pope Boniface needed someone to teach him what every writer knows, or at least every writer should know. Write to your audience. First of all, your language is impenetrable, and this guy is not classically trained. He's going to have a hell of a time understanding it. And second, you're trying to convert someone, and you start out by bringing up the Trinity? A concept so complex that even practicing Christians have a hard time understanding how you can have three aspects to a god, but still have monotheism. And then he moves on to original sin, which is only slightly less complex. And then he follows it up with an odd little bit of passive-aggressive use of the Psalms to point out how non-Christians were ignorant and how the Pope just doesn't understand where Edwin went so wrong in his life. Good plan, Bonnie. But on the upside, Edwin couldn't read. So who knows how much of this got to him? Paulinus might have read the letter and thought, Nope, no way am I saying this to that blood-soaked king. I'll just tell him about how conversion will bring him fabulous cash and prizes in this life and the next, and then, I don't know, give him these presents that the Pope sent. Now, the Pope also wrote to Queen Aethelbur, and he basically said, keep up the good work on being Christian, but please work a little harder on converting your heathen husband. And here's some presents. There was a little more to it, but that really is the gist of it. So even before we get to the council, we already know that Edwin was under no small amount of pressure to convert. And we also know of the prior promise to consider conversion in exchange for the marriage to Aethelbur. And we know about his promise to convert if he defeated the people who tried to have him assassinated. But that wasn't all. Bede tells us about a strange encounter that Edwin had years before. So, back when Edwin was couch surfing with Raidwald, Aethelfrith was sending out bribes and threats to hand him over or have him killed. And as you remember, the third bribe came with a threat of war. And Raidwald bent saying that he would hand over Edwin. According to Bede, one of the courtiers who was in the room at the moment went to Edwin's chamber and told him of Raidwald's intent and said that he would spirit away the exiled prince. And then Bede tells us that Edwin refused and said he would rather die at Raidwald's hand than flee. And honestly, this sounds entirely plausible. Edwin might have hit a point of absolute despair and just decided he didn't want to run anymore. Furthermore, it's possible that Raidwald did say he was going to hand over Edwin, but really didn't want to. And so he, or maybe the queen, had a messenger go over there and try and get him out of the kingdom. But Edwin, being too depressed, just refused to go. I mean, that would actually work out pretty well, because that way they could avoid war with Aethelfrith, because it's pointless to attack Raidwald if Edwin isn't there. But at the same time, he doesn't have to betray him. But whatever the case, we're told that he was warned, and Edwin just didn't want to run anymore. And then we're told that he sat alone and moped. And I don't blame him one bit. He's had a hell of a day. And while he was out there moping, apparently a stranger found him, saluted him, and asked him why he was up so late, brooding when he should be asleep. Edwin apparently responded with, What is it to you what I do with my evening? Which I love about Edwin. The stranger said that he knew why Edwin was so upset, and he wanted to know what he would give to the man who saved him from Raidwald and by connection, Aethelfrith. 
Edwin said that he would give that person a single favor. Ugh, you never, ever want to offer a blank check, Edwin. Come on, at least establish a few specifics. Otherwise, the price might be too high. I mean, what if he demanded you spend the rest of your life watching the Twilight movies? Think it through. But the blank check was offered. The stranger then wanted to know what he would get if he also ensured that Edwin would defeat his enemies and that he would be the most powerful king in England. That sounds like quite the deal. And frankly, I'm a little bit surprised that Edwin didn't respond with, Wait a minute. Are you about to tell me you're a Nigerian prince and all you need is my bank account number? But instead, he said that he would return the favoring kind, which is a much better promise than the blank check. And then the stranger said he wanted to promise to submit and follow the counsel of whoever gave him all of these gifts. He keeps asking for more, doesn't he? But Edwin agreed, so the stranger placed his hand upon Edwin's head and said, When this sign shall be given to you, remember this present discourse that has passed between us, and do not delay the performance of what you now promise. And then, I kid you not, he disappeared. That's what Bede tells us. The stranger vanished into thin air. Really, Bede? Not even Scooby-Doo would have something that outlandish. At most, Edwin would just remove the stranger's mask and discover it was Old Man Withers. But anyway, that's what we're told happened. And then we have the story that you already know. The Queen ended up giving Raidwald a bit of a bollocking, and Raidwald changed his mind and decided to fight Aethelfrith on Edwin's behalf. And eventually, Edwin became the most powerful king in England. So, you know, wish granted. Now, obviously, given my snark, I'm not entirely buying this one. But there is a possible twist on this, setting aside the random vanishing act. What if this was someone from Raidwald or the Queen's inner circle? Most of this sounds like it might have been the royal couple trying to determine whether or not they should take a risk on Edwin, and whether or not he would make it worth their while. I mean, if you take it out of the spiritual context... What will you give us if we save your life and put you on the throne? Seems like a political question. And maybe there was just a spiritual flourish that was added in later after numerous retellings in hindsight. It's possible. But anyway, that's not the story we're being told. And Bede continues. So apparently, while Edwin was debating the question of religion, we're told that Paulinus came in and laid his right hand upon Edwin's head. Just as the stranger had prophesied during his vision. Thus, we're told that Edwin was convinced that he should submit to the bishop. But he would need to talk to his council first, and only if all of his council also wanted to convert would he do so. Yup, he still wasn't convinced. Marriage, victory, ballsy bishops claiming credit for the birth of his daughter, and now even mystical encounters with spirits. And still, he was a bit unsure about this whole Christianity thing. Paulinus must have been at his wit's end at this point. But honestly, this was a smart move on the part of Edwin, and I suspect that this bit really did happen. It seems in his character. I'm sure you can tell him a bit skeptical about the spirit, but this delay makes absolute sense to me. He's still testing everything out. So he let this god into his kingdom, and he hasn't had massive rebellions, so that's a good sign. He also tried him on for size in battle against a fellow pagan, Quichelm. And that ended pretty well. And now he wants to see if he can get his council to sign off. After all, if they all join in, then he's going to be able to dodge a few potential rivals who could use this as a reason to make a move against him. Moreover, it gives him cover. 
It's not just Edwin who had decided to force a conversion on the kingdom. Now it's his whole council as well, many of whom were probably thanes. Now, some have described Edwin as an indecisive figure, but I think that's a very superficial reading of the events. This man was pretty clearly shrewd, and he wasn't going to make a move unless the odds were in his favor. So, with the council gathered, Edwin asked them what they thought of Paulinus' religion. And Coifi, Edwin's own high priest, answered, quote, O king, consider what this which is now preached to us. For I verily declare to you that the religion which we have hitherto professed has, as far as I can learn, no virtue in it. For none of your people has applied himself more diligently to the worship of our gods than I. And yet there are many who receive greater favors from you and are more preferred than I and are more prosperous in all their undertakings. Now, if the gods were good for anything, they would rather forward me who have been more careful to serve them. It remains, therefore, that if upon examination you find these new doctrines, which are now preached to us, better and more efficacious, we immediately receive them without any delay. End quote. Sounds like Coifi and Woden had a bit of a fight and they were on a break. Moreover, he sounds a bit bitter that some other people in Northumbria were getting better gifts from Edwin than he was. However, we really need to consider who's telling us this story. A Christian monk who's pulling these stories from fellow Christians. And these stories are over a hundred years old. If Coifi made a strong argument, do you think that that argument would have been passed down? After all, from the Christian perspective, wouldn't that be spreading the words of a false religion? Obviously, we don't have a counterexample of what Coifi said in other circumstances, and maybe he had lost all faith. But you should probably still consider the source. But that being said, there is another possibility here and Coifi might have just been rather cynical and faithless. What I mean is, he might have seen the writing on the wall and realized that given the zeal of these Christians, he better get out ahead of the coming storm and be part of the conversion rather than finding himself standing alone when everyone else converted. Being a pagan high priest and a stumbling block for his king's conversion might not lead to a long and healthy life if the king decided he wanted to be a Christian. Anyway, then Bede tells us then another of his counselors said, quote, The present life of man, O king, seems to me, in comparison of that time which is unknown to us, like the swift flight of a sparrow through a room wherein you sit at supper in winter, with your commanders and ministers, and a good fire in the midst, whilst the storms of rain and snow prevail abroad. The sparrow, I say, flying in one door and immediately out the other, whilst he is within, is safe from the wintry storm. But after a short space of fair weather, he immediately vanishes from your sight into the dark winter from which he had emerged. So this life of man appears for a short space. But of what went before, or what is to follow, we are utterly ignorant. If, therefore, this new doctrine contains something more certain, it seems justly deserved to be followed. End quote. Did you follow that? He's saying that if Christianity can explain the mysteries of life and death, they should convert. And apparently, the other counselors said things along the same lines. And then Coifi felt like he hadn't trolled Woden enough, so he decided to really throw in his lot with Paulinus and said, quote, I have long since been sensible that there is nothing in that which we worshipped, because the more diligently I have sought after truth in that worship, the less I found it. But now I freely confess that such truth evidently appears in this preaching as can confer on us the gifts of life 
of salvation, and of eternal happiness. For which reason I advise, O king, that we instantly abjure and set fire to those temples and altars which we have consecrated without reaping any benefit from them. End quote. Wow. Coming out pretty strong there. Bede then tells us that Coifi mounted a stallion, rode to his temple, and cast a spear into it and set it on fire. Bede described this as desecrating the temple, and I'm sure that's what he thought it was. But that fact makes me think that he was definitely putting words into Coifi's mouth. Because this was not a desecration. If you look at his acts, he was performing a death rite and was giving the temple to Woden. This is why I think that Coifi was probably a great deal more opposed to this change than Bede has told us, and that, upon seeing that he couldn't stop it, he sent his sacred objects and building to Valhalla. The last obstacle was out of the way. Nothing stood in Paulinus's way anymore. The council had consented. The temple was burned. Finally, after all these years, Edwin would convert. And he will next time we talk about him. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast.gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash britishhistory. And honestly, our community is really growing fast. We've got Twitter. We've got Tumblr. We've got the app. We've got all kinds of stuff. So the best way to go about it is to head over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and just have a poke around. There's good stuff in there. All right. Thanks for listening.